I invite you to turn with me to our text today, as it's found in Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Daniel 3, 1 through 7. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits, and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors and captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, Harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music. All the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. A ruler within a nation does not have the lawful authority or the right to legislate what is contrary to God's commandments and to enforce it with penalties. That is called tyranny. When he does so, he in effect sets himself up upon a pedestal to be honored like God. I mean, even above God just as Nebuchadnezzar did with his golden image. Rulers may not command us to bow down and worship an image as did Nebuchadnezzar. But dear ones, when they legislate what is evil, they themselves usurp the supreme authority of God and his law. And they rebel against Jesus Christ, the King of kings, 
And this is essentially what Nebuchadnezzar did. You see, the tyranny of rebellious rulers is not morally indifferent. It's not morally neutral. Tyranny is not just a political debate of one party's position against another political party's position on a particular subject. It is still tyranny, dear ones, even if the majority within a nation supports the tyranny because it's still contrary to God's commandments. It is tyranny because the wicked rulers no longer rule as God's ministers to us for good, which is what Paul says must be the case if they are lawful magistrates in Romans 13.4. But rather they assert their own authority to rule by their own wicked laws rather than submitting themselves to the kingship and to the authority of Jesus Christ and his righteous laws. Tyranny, dear ones, is satanic. It is satanic. Just as Samuel Rutherford writes in Lex Rex, he says, tyranny being a work of Satan is not from God because sin, either habitual or actual, is not from God. The power that is the authority that is must be from God. While we can clearly see the religious issue involved in the tyranny of King Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel chapter 3 in commanding worship to an idol, that's pretty clear. But let us not, dear ones, be blind to the religious issue involved in all tyranny because the religious issue involved in all tyranny is this to its core. It is man's resistance to God's absolute authority. And so that all tyranny is a religious issue as well as a civil issue. The main points from our text today are the following. Number one, the golden image built and dedicated in Daniel 3, verses 1 through 3. Second main point, the wicked command issued to worship the golden image in Daniel 3, verses 4 through 6. And the third main point, the majority comply with the wicked command in Daniel 3.7. So our first main point, the golden image built and dedicated in Daniel 3, verses 1 through 3. Once again, we read, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. The Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces, 
to come to the dedication of the image, which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors and captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. As we now move from Daniel chapter 2 to Daniel chapter 3, we're not told in our text how much time passed between the end of Daniel 2 to the beginning of Daniel 3. Uh, From the time in which, in Daniel chapter 2 at the end, Nebuchadnezzar is offering up certain praise to God, and here in chapter 3, he's commanding worship uh, to this image, this golden image. Interestingly, the the Greek Septuagint, which is the um, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, in Daniel chapter 3, says that it was in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, in Daniel 2, 1, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, which was interpreted by Daniel, it says it was in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So if that's accurate, and again, it's not found in our, in, in our Hebrew text uh, here, or in, in the English text that's based upon the Hebrew text, uh, we don't know for sure. But if in, indeed it was at that length of time, then it was 16 years, 16 years after uh, the whole matter of Uh, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and that being interpreted by Daniel. What we do know is that when Nebuchadnezzar's dream was revealed and interpreted by Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar declared what we read in verse 47, chapter 2, verse 47, the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. And now we find the same king, sometime afterward, however long it was, making a golden image and commanding all the great rulers uh, throughout his empire to gather and to fall down and to worship Uh, this golden image. At the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had even promoted Daniel and his three friends, as we read in verses 48 through uh, 49, Daniel chapter 2. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governor's over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So how could Nebuchadnezzar go from honoring Daniel and his friends, go from honoring the one true living God, in Daniel 2, to forming, establishing, making this image and commanding all to bow down and worship it. 
and then casting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into this fiery furnace. Well, let me suggest the following reasons how that could be. Well, first of all, there was only a temporary change in Nebuchadnezzar's heart because he had gotten what he wanted. That is, he had gotten the dream that he could not remember, and he had gotten the interpretation of the dream. So he got what he wanted, and so he, he honored the one true living God. Is that the way we are? That we honor him when we get what we want, but we don't when we don't get what we want? Well, that's the kind of heart that Nebuchadnezzar had. He did not have a new heart that comes uh, from the living God. His heart was temporary in its honoring of God. Second, uh, he continued in his idolatry. Uh, he didn't repent of his idolatry. He was only willing to affirm that Jehovah God was the chief among the gods of the nations. He was the chief among the pantheon of gods. But he did not trust in the one true living God. He did not seek God's forgiveness. He did not serve and worship only Jehovah God. And third, in the ministry of Christ, we see that even demons that are cast out of those who are sorely afflicted with them, declared, those demons declared that Jesus was the Holy One of Israel, declared that Jesus was the Christ, declared that Jesus was the Son of God. And so if they could declare that and not have a changed or a new heart, but merely state what is true, then certainly Nebuchadnezzar could likewise have an unchanged heart and declare what is true. It's almost as though, in the case of the demons, the Lord was bringing forth, not because they wanted to, but because they must declare the truth concerning Jesus Christ. So likewise, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. As we consider uh, this image that Nebuchadnezzar made now, we're not given much background information uh, as to what was the likeness of the image and why he built it. As to the likeness of this image, many assume it was the likeness of a man, though it's not specifically stated that it was a likeness of a man. But I think that's a reasonable assumption, that it was the likeness of a man that was built by Nebuchadnezzar. Even if 16 years, using the Septuagint's dating, even if 16 years had passed since the dream of that great image back in Daniel chapter 2, the fact that the Holy Spirit has placed the building of this image immediately after the image in the dream seems to indicate a relationship in some way between those images. 
In fact, the same Aramaic word is used for both of those images. Furthermore, in the great human image of Nebuchadnezzar in his dream, the head, you'll recall, the head of that image was of pure gold. And it represented, in the dream, it represented Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty kingdom, as we see in Daniel 2, verse 38, where Daniel interprets the head of gold in that image. Thou art, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, thou art this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom was that which represent, was represented by the head of gold. Also, another parallel between these two images uh, was that they were huge. They were enormous. They were great images as well. They weren't puny little, uh, little uh, pocket-sized images, something you simply set upon your, your uh, bookshelf or something of that nature. Th these were huge images, both of them. And so I, I would suggest that the parallels that we find between uh, the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and that we find uh, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar's image, are not irrelevant. I believe they're very relevant. They help us, I believe, to understand the relationship uh, between the two of them. So if this image was in human form that Nebuchadnezzar built, whose image did it represent? Again, we're not specifically told. But it could have been an image of Nebuchadnezzar because as we read from Daniel 2.38, thou art the head, this head of gold in the dream. So it could have been an image of Nebuchadnezzar or perhaps it was an image of uh, the chief god of Babylon, Marduk. Or an image of something else. We're just not specifically told. But let me ask you a question. Is this making and, uh, of an image by Nebuchadnezzar and bowing down before this image wrong simply because it was a pagan king that built it and commanded the worship? What if it had been a, a human image as large as it was of gold signifying Jehovah God? Would it have been less of an abomination to God to make such an image and to bow down to it or before it. You remember Israel in the wilderness in the golden calf? That golden calf did not represent a false god. They said, Aaron said about the golden calf, let us Basically, worship, I'm putting it in, into my own words, but let us worship Jehovah God. Let us celebrate a feast unto God uh, by means of this golden calf. 
That was supposed to be a representation of the one true living God. They were not worshiping Baal or Marduk or uh, uh, Molech or any other false god. Uh, They were worshiping the one true living God by way of an image. What did God think about that? Uh, It was an abomination to him. Uh, he, he sent a plague amongst Israel to destroy thousands of them. Ground it up to find dust, threw it into the sea and had them drink from it as judgment. When we read in the second commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 verses 4 through 5, where it says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Very easy for us to simply say, well, he's talking about worship to a false god. But is that really, I, I, I agree that a, the same thing would be true, that they were not to make an image or bow down to an image that represented a false god. But is that the context of this commandment? I dare say it is not, because if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is in, in chapter 5 is the restating of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, after they had, are about to enter into the land, renewing their covenant with God into the promised land. But in the previous chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 4, notice what it says, what God says to Moses before these commandments, the Ten Commandments are given, and particularly the Second Commandment. Deuteronomy 4.11 And ye came near and stood under the mountain that is Sinai and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness and the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire ye heard the voice of the words but saw no similitude only ye heard a voice in other words you didn't see an image of me you didn't see any similitude or likeness. I did not reveal myself by way of any likeness. You simply heard my voice. Verse 13. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. Now notice, verse 15 says, For ye saw no manner of similitude on that day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, 
the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth, unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. So, see the relationship? Because God did not reveal himself by way of some image or some similitude, some likeness. It's that reason that they're not to make an image of him. It's of him, not of a false god, but not make an image, a similitude, a likeness of him, the one true living God. That's what's condemned. When we read in the second commandment, thou shall not make. Notice there's two parts to this commandment. First of all, thou shall not make it to thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That pretty much covers any anything. Uh, the heaven above, the earth, or the sea, the waters below. Not to make any image representing God. But the second part of this commandment is, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. So not only is an image not to be made, but we are not to bow down uh, before that image that allegedly represents God represents the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. This is likewise, I believe, uh, accurately, biblically summarized in the larger catechism in question 109, where it asks, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? The answer, the sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, tolerating a false religion, notice this, the making any representation of God, of all or of any of the three persons, that is, the three persons of the Holy Trinity, not making any representation, whether it be a statue, whether it be a painting, whether it be an actor upon a screen, no representation of the one true living God. That's what's condemned in the second commandment. So it doesn't matter uh, whether it was, uh, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, clearly it was, it was not the one true living God that was represented by that image, uh, but a false God whether he was deifying himself or whether it was Marduk, it doesn't matter, but it, it doesn't even matter if it was the one true living God whose image it was. It would still be, and I would suggest to you, even more so condemned to try to put into a human form the one true living God in a form that he's not commanded, in a form he's never stated he wanted to be in. The proportions of this image, which may have not only included the image, but a huge pedestal upon which the image stood, um, the proportions were enormous. 
60 cubits, about 90 feet high, and six cubits wide, that is about nine feet wide, was probably constructed uh, of wood and then overlaid with pure gold. And it was set up in an area uh, outside the city of Babylon, uh, in the province of Babylon, but outside the city in a plain, uh, a flat area uh, where it could be set up and many people could gather and could see the image from uh, a far off distance. It's called the Plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The dedication of this image was certainly religious in nature. I don't think we have any problem in being able to see the religious nature of this uh, image and the dedication of it, the bowing down to it. But it was also civil. It was also civil in that all of the leaders throughout the empire were called to attend. So it was both religious and civil. When nations seek to build a wall of separation between that which is religious and that which is civil in their institutions and laws, a huge wall, an inseparable wall, an unbreakable wall, a complete wall of separation between that which is religious and that which is civil, they will inevitably fail in all such attempts. It is impossible. It is impossible to achieve a complete and total separation of that which is religious from that which is civil in civil government and in laws of a nation. For laws, laws are always moral in nature. Somebody's morality. They're always moral in nature. It simply depends on whose morality is being followed. And so, in laws, there's always somebody's morality is being imposed. So, when uh, secularists say you can't impose you know, your laws, your Christian laws upon us, they're very fine with imposing their religious, non-Christian laws upon us. Perhaps the religious nature of a, of a nation may be more clearly seen in nations past and present that have established a particular religion as that religion of that nation, like Babylon did, and like all ancient and modern nations have done until the ratification of the U.S. Constitution in 1788. But I submit that, dear ones, no nation is able to completely, including the United States, no nation is able to completely separate the civil from the religious, or the religious from the civil. 
because law and morality are inherently religious and because government is inherently religious because it was instituted by God and because it's under the kingship of Jesus Christ, it is inherently religious according to Romans 13, 4. Dear ones, Jesus has been established by the Father as King of Kings. 1 Timothy 6.15 And as the Prince of the Kings of the Earth in Revelation 1.5 We read that all earthly authority, all earthly power, including that of rulers and of nations has been given to Jesus Christ. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Matthew 28.18 All that earthly authority has been placed all dominions of rulers, kings, governments has been placed under his feet, under the feet of Jesus Christ and exercising dominion over it to the good and the blessing of the church. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Now listen closely. Thus, to obey and to serve Jesus Christ and his law or to disobey and to resist Jesus Christ and his law are religious acts of obedience or religious acts of disobedience and resistance and rebellion against Jesus Christ. It is inescapable Obedience to or rebellion against Jesus Christ is religious, even in the civil realm. Not only in the personal realm, not only in the family realm, not only in the church realm, in the civil realm as well. And so the question then is not whether a nation is religious or not, but the question is, which religion is established? Is it biblical Christianity or some form of man's religion? Even an atheistic, so-called atheistic nation is religious in rebelling against Jesus Christ in setting up its own God to be worshipped instead of Jesus Christ, as did Nebuchadnezzar. You see, all nations, without exception, all nations in rebellion against Jesus Christ are ultimately following a religious person. Satan. Satan in his rebellion against Jesus Christ. In rejecting Jesus Christ and the Bible, nations are not rejecting religion. Understand, they're not rejecting religion, but are rejecting the Christian religion. That's what they're rejecting. So the question really is, 
Which religion should be established in a nation? The one true biblical Christian religion in which Jesus Christ is honored as king of kings and his laws are established? Or the religion of man that follows Satan in his rebellion against Jesus Christ? Our second main point. The wicked command issued to worship the golden image in Daniel chapter 3 verses 4 through 6. Then in herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, Ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. The command to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's image here is universal. No exceptions are made. In verse 4. To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages. And just in case there should be anyone that refuses the king's command, there's a little further incentive, a burning, fiery furnace in verse 6. It was a grievous abomination, clearly, to make such a religious image and to call people, command people to bow down before it. And so the making of the image was an abomination, but it was a further aggravation of that sin to command them to bow down before it and worship it. It would appear that there had not been up to this particular point in time a demand from the king that required Daniel or his three friends or any of the faithful Jews in Babylon uh, to worship a false god. This was unique. This would appear to have been the first time that this occurred. For the previous 20 years in captivity, approximately 20 years in captivity, God's people had not faced a situation like this one. Like this one. But it eventually came. The situation eventually came, just like it will eventually come when we get to Daniel chapter 6, under not a Babylonian king, but under a Persian king, King Darius in Daniel 6, where, again, worship is to be directed toward the king. No prayers are to be offered, but to the king for 30 days. And then we see the consequence in that situation uh, either um, follow the king's command and order or suffer in the lion's den. Or in the time of the Maccabees, which we looked at a few weeks ago, uh, the, the faithful Jewish uh, during the time of the Maccabees, before the coming, first coming of Christ, who were commanded to worship Antiochus Epiphanes, offer sacrifice, incense to, to, uh, to the Syrian king, 
And those who refused uh, were uh, slaughtered uh, there on the spot. Or in the time of the Roman emperors, eventually, again, as I said, they, they survived for a number of years. Christians did under the rule of Rome. But there came a time where it was no longer the case that they were forced. They were put in a situation where they must either say Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord and offer sacrifice to Caesar or offer the sacrifice of their heart and their lips to Jesus Christ. There also came a time in in England in the 16th century the time of Mary Tudor Bloody Mary who burnt alive hundreds hundreds of faithful believers who would not bow the knee to the idol of a transubstantiated wafer in the Lord's Supper and would not declare that wafer to be the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And they were burnt alive and suffered by the scores, by the hundreds during that period of time. There came a time. You see, tyranny does not usually begin in its most violent form, but gradually, over time, builds and builds by way of usurping more and more of the crown rights of Jesus Christ as king over a nation, rejecting his laws. But finally, the tyrannical laws will be designed to expose all those who will not bow the knee to the Nebuchadnezzars of this age and their immoral laws. The Lord brings there was throughout history, the time of Daniel, the time of the Maccabees, the time of Christ and the early Christians, the time of the Reformation. The Lord brings these times to pass, not to destroy us, uh, not to expunge us. He brings these times to pass in order to purify us, his people, in order for us to see what truly is important, what truly counts is following Jesus Christ, whatever it may mean, whatever it may cost us, that's what truly counts. We can leave behind everything in this world, but if we have Jesus Christ, we have everything. The Lord during those times is separating the chaff from the wheat. Those who merely profess faith in Jesus Christ from those who truly have faith in Jesus Christ. The universality of this command to worship the image is really a test of the fidelity to the king from, from a civil perspective as well as a religious perspective, test the uh, empire's fidelity 
to the king. Uh, and he, it was a token of their unity as one empire encompassing many different nations. All of these nations had their own national gods that they worshipped, with which Nebuchadnezzar really had no problem because just as he was a polytheist, so all of them were polytheists. They all had their uh, national gods. Therefore, to bow before and honor Nebuchadnezzar's image was no problem to these rulers from other nations to say, well, we're, we have no problem bowing down to, ba to Babylon, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, image here in Babylon. Um, it was no problem to them. You see, this was a so-called unity built upon the widest, broadest form of idolatry. Because in polytheism, again, you could have as many gods, add as many pantheon of gods. And so your god may be, your god of your nation as, a, as an idolater, as a pagan, may be at the top, but you don't have any problem honoring all these other gods. That's why it was no problem for either Nebuchadnezzar or for uh, the rulers of these nations. But this is a false unity. It's a unity built upon the widest, broadest form of idolatry. This was a so-called unity that was willing to include your God as long as you were willing to include my God. This was a false unity, a perversion of biblical unity. That sadly, this false view of unity is sadly practiced by so many churches today. A false unity built upon diversity, not unity, diversity in doctrine, but rather disagreement in the truth. Whereas the biblical unity is based upon a unity in the truth. Not a disagreement as to the truth. Not a diversity as to doctrine and worship and church government. Amos 3.3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Matthew 28 verses 19 through 20 in what is called the Great Commission, Jesus sends them out, but he says, this is what they are to teach. Not whatever they want to, not something that's in disagreement with what Jesus says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. There is never a liberty or a freedom to teach what Christ has not commanded in his word. And I understand someone's going to say, but there are many interpretations. But let us also understand, God is not double-minded, triple-minded. God does not hold all interpretations. He's not schizophrenic. There is one true interpretation. And if we simply give up and say, well, they're sincere, and that's all that really matters, then we're in effect saying it. It doesn't even matter to God himself what God has commanded, what God has authorized in his word. First Corinthians 1.10 says, 
Now I beseech you, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he invokes here the name of Jesus Christ and what, what he's about to say. So he's speaking in the authority of Jesus Christ. What does he say? By the authority of Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Same mind and same judgment about doctrine, about the truth, about worship, about government of the church. Be of the same mind, not diversity, not putting all interpretations upon this level playing field. No, there is one. There is one that God has, again, given and established. And if we don't start there, we're simply going to accept whatever somebody says, however many of those there might be. Dear ones, I appeal to you, let us reject Nebuchadnezzar's view of unity. That is why we have our confession of faith. That is why we have catechisms. That is why we have directories. That is why we have covenants. We receive and stand for those biblical truths that have been approved by the national churches of the past that reached the highest degree of reformation and attainments. And again, someone says that they simply disagree with what is stated. They need to have exceedingly abundant testimony and evidence why they would disagree with national churches, not simply an individual, with national churches that were used mightily by God to bring forth nations, not simply a few people here or there, but nations to the living God. The assigned cue to bow and worship Nebuchadnezzar's image was the playing of all these instruments, all manner of instruments that we find in Daniel 3.5. And so we come to the final, the last main point. The majority comply with the wicked command, Daniel 3.7. Therefore at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. The vast majority, 99.9999% and on, followed this false unity in bowing before Nebuchadnezzar's image. Dear ones, let us learn from this and from so many other places in scripture that the majority, most of the time, are wrong. Most of the time, 
the majority are wrong, not right. That it is the remnant that more often than not in scriptural revelation is right. Beginning with Noah, eight people saved, the whole world destroyed. Lot, the righteous man, and yet the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. The two spies, out of the 12 spies sent into the land, have a minority report that they can take the land because God has promised it, but the 10 spies say, no, we can't take the land. We're going to be crushed. Gideon's 300, very small number against the 120,000 Midianites that were delivered into their hands by God. The faithful throughout, again, the Old and New Testaments are often called a remnant, a remnant. Jesus speaks of the broad way versus the narrow way. The broad way has many people on it. It leads to destruction. It's the narrow way where few there be upon it, Jesus says. In Revelation 13.3, all the world follow the beast. The beast of Revelation, the civil beast there in Revelation, like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a type, a shadow of that beast in, in many respects, of that, of that beast to come, the whole world. Followed Nebuchadnezzar, the whole world follows the beast, according to Revelation 13.3. It speaks of, again, a, a small group, two witnesses, which represent a small group of people standing up against the beast. Revelation. That's why we read and God gives to us this information and this command in Exodus 23.2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. And I close by simply asking you this question in each of our lives. Asking myself the same question. What is the idol what is the idol that Satan casts before us and calls us to bow down before and to worship, to follow, to cast our desires, all of our desires, our highest desires and our love upon money, possessions, sexual desires, drugs, Alcohol, our job, popularity, pleasing ourselves, food, exercise, sports, or entertainment. Now, those things are not sinful. Most of the things I mentioned are not sinful in and of themselves. It's when they become our treasure, over our treasure in heaven, that they become an idol to us. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
determined. Look in your own life at what is your treasure. There will your heart, there will your uh, desires be when that treasure is more important to you, that earthly treasure is more important to you than is Jesus Christ and that heavenly treasure. That's where your heart, that's where your affections are, that's where your love is. So where is, where is your treasure? Is your treasure here upon the earth? Or your treasure in heaven? Because if your treasure is here upon the earth, it's gonna perish. You're gonna lose it all when you die. But if your treasure is in heaven, you're not gonna lose, you're going to gain. You're going to gain in every way. Dear ones, Jesus died to deliver us from all of our idolatry. If we do not see our idolatry, if we don't care about our idolatry, that says something very, very important about our souls. Because we should care about any idolatry. And if we see that idolatry, flee to Jesus Christ. Flee to him that he may forgive, that he may deliver, that he may set you free from that idolatry through his death and through his resurrection. Pray, dear ones, earnestly pray that God gives you a clear vision of that which is idolatrous in your life and in mine because otherwise we're not going to be fleeing if we don't have a clear vision of what is truly an abomination to God, much like Nebuchadnezzar's image was an abomination to God. So our idolatry is an abomination to our holy, our reverent, and to our good and merciful God. Let us flee to him. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank thee and praise thee that thou hast opened our eyes to see our idols, to see where our heart is, and Lord, help us to continue to have that understanding, to be able to see with clear vision, to be convicted by thy spirit, that Lord, our our treasure would not be that which is upon the earth. Our, our chief and our most important treasure would not be that which is upon the earth, but that which is in heaven, even our Savior. We ask our, our God that thou would likewise deliver us from tyranny in high places, from governments that practice tyranny. Lord, we thank thee that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the prince of the kings of the earth, that all authority has been given unto him, 
and that all of these kingdoms are under his feet. And thank thee, our God, that he will bring to pass judgment upon wicked nations and will draw even those wicked nations, convert them and bring them unto Jesus Christ. We plead with thee, our Lord, show forth thy might and thy power. If any, Lord God, are among us who do not trust in thee, are not trusting in thee, that thou would work in their lives, that they would, Lord, cast away their, their idolatry and serving other masters and serving other gods, that thou, our Lord and our God, would be their only God, not simply their supreme God, like Nebuchadnezzar, but our God, that Lord God, that Jesus Christ would be our only God, that we worship and adore. We thank thee in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.